Vix the Convince. Welcome to the Vix the Convince podcast. Here's your host, NewSpark founder, Paul Mosenson. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm Paul Mosenson, founder of NewSpark Consulting, a marketing optimization and revenue generation firm. Hope everybody's doing well today. Today we're going to discuss a high-level concept called marketing mix modeling and making the right channel decisions in your business in order to maximize ROI and revenue generation during this time of business disruption. Be a very interesting topic today. So I want to welcome my guest, Christine Crandall. Hello, Christine. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much for inviting me to this. Sure, my pleasure. Who is this Christine Crandall? So let me explain. She's the president of New Business Strategies. It's a B2B customer experience and strategy consulting firm. She's a recognized expert in customer experience transformation, strategy, and growth marketing. Wow. New Business Strategies has created $3 billion in value for over 100 B2B private and public companies in North America, Europe, and Australia. Her clients realize on average 30% increases in client revenue and 40% increase in return on marketing investment. She's a frequent speaker. Christine is quoted in several books and has been recognized with several industry awards. She's published over 300 articles on strategy, customer experience, sales and marketing alignment. She's the author of Seller's Compass, a time-proven mythology for operating operationalizing customer experience by aligning corporate strategy, culture, leadership, and technology. And she can be reached at her website, newbizs.com. I'll spell that. N-E-W-B-I-Z-S.com. Okay, well, thanks for, no, I'm only kidding. The podcast is just starting now. But that was a mouthful, but I'm very impressed. And I'm glad to have you on. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. (laughs) Yeah, try to make this entertaining, especially in today's world. So I'm going to ask you some questions here, and uh, so here we go. I'm going to talk about an article you recently authored called Six Megatrends of the New Normal. Why? Well, you know, um, what started in in what's core to to a lot of our strategy work is we do sense-making and signposts, right? So this is a, a process that if, someone's familiar with scenario planning, they're going to, they're, you know, they're going to hear, they're going to, this is will resonate with them. But, you know, part of the key for what we do is to really sort of understand how trends are evolving and what the relationship is between trends outward in time, right? Because again, reading the tea leaves and the more I looked at this pandemic and the more I started to start to see the behavior that was changing, it really was this tipping point, right? It's this tipping point of how these companies are you know operating and they're structuring and they're selling and what came out of the analysis that we did of all of these signposts were these six megatrends right we could have i mean i could have written 20 or 30 megatrends but you know six is a little bit more of a digestible um uh, number and the focus and the reason i wrote is because so many people were saying hey when we, we go back to normal right? Or when, when the shutdown stops and we can go back to our lives. Well, that is not going to happen. Instead of, so our focus was instead of trying to focus on the here and the now, let's help people understand what's down that road, what's around that corner. 
so that they can look beyond versus looking today. And so of the, you know, again, hundreds of signposts and what we see are going to evolve over the next two, five, 10 years are these six megatrends. And I won't go through each one of them, but I'll just quickly tell you what, you know, all six of them are. And the first is time will become the basis of competition, right? And it's about speed, right? It's about how do we preserve mm -hmm. time? Mm -hmm. The second is authentic human connections are going to re totally redefine commerce, right? And that, you know, became really, really clear in what's going on and how people are responding to brands today. The third is companies will organize around the customer. Um, fourth is vigilant, and I'll explain a little bit. Vigilant organizations will rise driven by purpose. Uh, the difference between a vigilant organization and organizations today or vigilant organizations are long-term oriented. We right now are in an economy that's focused on short-termism. You know, what's my quarter like? What's tomorrow? When do I get it? You know, me, 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 now, 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 now. And it's causing companies to have extremely short lifespans. So the, the pendulum is swinging in the other direction to be long-term focused and to be focused on purpose, right? This has been going around on for a while. What is my mission other than to make profit? Is it to you know, help homelessness, is it, is it to help the earth, you know, so all of that's rooted in the United Nations um, sustainability development goals, all 17 of them. Um, the fifth megatrend is business models will shift from optimization and efficiency to agility and speed. Um, and that has huge consequences on technology, huge consequences on structure. And then the last one is global supply chains will restructure around proximity to demand. Um, that's about making sure we all have supply for things that we want, but it's more than just restructuring the supply chain. We're going to see technology actually disintermediating, um, you know, e-commerce marketplaces. So there's some amazing stuff. So out of this darkness we're in today, there is an amazing goodness coming down the road. And that's what we want companies to focus on and get ready for. Great. Let me do a follow-up question on you on that. These, these are great points. What's the bottom line with a potential customer or prospect when they're trying to make decisions for their company with all of this? You know, it's, it's, it, I'm going to say the word that everybody groans on and it is about, it's time to change, right? And the bottom line is we need to look at how we can deal with accelerated rates of change. I mean, a classic example, we all got sheltered in place, right? And in a matter of days, we all went to Zoom or, you know, WebEx, pick your poison. Um, there was no, you know, there's complaining and whining, but those that could, okay, there's not the entire economy can do this. But there was no, that we were ready for that. We were ready to move into this, into this environment. That rate of change is going to accelerate even faster. So the structure we have now with how we organize in these hierarchical organizations with perks with ranks, which we all care to preserve, that you know, institutionalizes rigidity. If we look at technology, which was an enabler um, with ERP systems and with BI and with all this other stuff, it's great. It provided some ability for flexibility, but in the end today, it actually is an, a, a disadvantage and it institutionalizes rigidity, right? So the bottom line of this is we're going to compete on giving customers B2B and B2C, but predominantly in B2B, we're going to give them better, faster service 
without degradation of the experience or the quality, right? And it is about how do I nimbly adjust? And organizations have given lip service to customer experience now for a good, you know, 10, 15 years, but they have been unable to adjust to the ever-evolving expectations of customers, right? So you have this mismatch and, the, and it gets aggravated by these organizations that where employees are not aligned, they don't operate like schools of fish and they can, there's lots of ways to go do that. They've been time proven. And so you have this mismatch and you wind up reverting back to platitudes. In the end, the customer is gonna want stuff faster. They're gonna want more val value. They're going to want stuff that is personalized to them, right? Not, you know, pick your four things and choose which one you want, right? It's like, I want it customized and I want it close to me. I want it now. Um, that's going to be the basis why I say time is competition. Companies that can't support that aren't going to make it. There's another thought I had too, which is the buyers themselves. And many of them, are, of course, are influentials versus bottom line decision makers, right? Their personas and they want to maintain their own value to a company. And even by researching companies and products and services, it kind of keeps uh, them in the game, right? Of uh, trying to, for the big picture to help, whether it's save money or resources or whatever it is, the benefit of a solution that they're uh, still researching or recommending. It's their job. So I wanted to throw that in. No, and I think that's a really, really good point, right? So we've all seen the statistic that 70 to 75% of the journey is completed before the buyer ever raises or the buying team ever raises their hand with a brand, right? And, and, um, and what happens in that 70, 75% is, is quite discoverable by brands if they do uh, outside in what I call a qualitative journey mapping, right? And, but it changes, right? So look at it, all of a sudden, even though this is the consumer example, you know, we went from Instagram, right? Which was, we thought, oh, well, that's only a B, B to C model to now being Instagram on B to B. Now we have TikTok, right? Um, you've got WhatsApp, so WhatsApp. So buying teams are moving across channels and making decisions as to where they can find credible information and trusted communities um, faster. So they're going to pivot through that, which is why you see LinkedIn is sort of losing, you know, it's got some issues, losing its effectiveness, and you're seeing more on Twitter, right? And brands have to be able to, to pivot to that and know where to make their investments. And right now they're not structured to go do that. They don't have the information, they don't have the tools, and that's not the mindset, right? And so what the bottom line to your point earlier is we need to think differently as businesses about how we engage with the customer. And in, in my, my, what I basically tell folks is like, let it go, get over it, right? Just if you wanna be in business, get over it and you know, figure or wrap yourself around the customer. And it works. Mm -hmm. Going back to your uh, Megatrans article, one point was interesting to me, and I'd like you to uh, expand on it, which is the uh, authentic human connections that's redefining commerce. Aren't we doing that already? Uh, yeah, well, we've been doing a lot of talking about it. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, for the past couple of decades, 
we've been focusing, companies have been focusing on the customer and the end user relationship through the perspective of, of efficiency, right? You know, so we look at automation, you look at MarTech, you look at AI, you know, everything is, is focused on how do I not be, not enable my customer to be efficient, but how do I become efficient internally? How do I scale? right? So that I can serve more customers. So it's an internal efficiency versus an enabling efficiency. And so what you see out of this is all sorts of stuff from, you know, personalization, which we can go on, you know, I call them faux relationships, but you know, we can go on about personalization. It's predictive analytics that tells, you know, the, the SDR, the BDR, what's that next account you need to go call. It tells the AE what's that next best action. You know, you look at all of this, you've got AI that now is supposed to, well, it doesn't, it actually does create, you know, automates, you know, creative work or copy generation. This is not about the customer. This is about me being efficient, right? And so what happens out of that is, like I said, you know, we have these faux relationships. You know, you're, you know, this persona, you're in this industry. We think you're in this part of the journey. You know, we don't really know, but because we've done the journey mapping inside out, we think you're in this part of the journey. And so therefore you're going to get this personalization. And that engagement is, is not unique to you, Paul, right? And to mm -hmm. your interest and to your needs. It's unique to your micro segment, right? And so what's come out of this COVID has been this backlash, right? From all the emails that have come out and from all the, I got your back, even, you don't, even though you did business with me six years ago, or, hey, you know, I understand that you might be looking at, you know, a chat bot, let me send you an app. Right. And, and the customer is now saying enough. I'm turned out. I'm turned out. <laughs> I'm tuned off. I'm tuned out, turned off. I'm, you know, I'm done. I want an authentic relationship. What's interesting, even more interesting of like, um, again, hundreds of hours of that I've talked to people around the world on the sales side, that's what sales wants. What I heard from salespeople, it didn't matter whether they were in China or they were in Australia, or they were in, you know, in Czechoslovakia, or in Canada, or in the US, it was, you know what, I want to do the right thing for my customer. I want to have a relationship with my customer. So there's this groundswell of, of saying we're done with, you know, all of us being, you know, putting these little boxes without understanding our own uniqueness. And that doesn't make any difference whether you're um, BASF, or you're the Toyota dealer, down the road, right? You know, the businesses want to be recognized for their own uniqueness. And, and so this is why I'm saying if we, as brands, B2B brands, if we don't recognize that, don't understand that uniqueness, don't understand how to operationalize that uniqueness, you know, they're going to take their business elsewhere. Well, it goes back to some of the marketing optimization stuff that we do and branding, value prop, messaging, marrying more benefits and features, all that kind of stuff that um, is pretty critical, especially when buyers are trying to, to choose various vendors to engage with. And so I agree. And personalization is a lot more important than ever and relationship building. And that's what it's all about because whether they buy now or buy later, you know, you do want to maintain really good thought leadership with them and give them ideas and uh, that's what it's all about. 
But, you know, a little more on this is the relationships as we just spoke about. How do B2B companies address this? We can't go back to having everyday salespeople build relationships with every single prospect. But how does it fit into a uh, what you call a flexible first mantra? You know, that's a really good question. Um, and the, the, the answer to that lies in, in a deeper understanding of the drivers of demand and, 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 market, and how marketers engage. And, and this comes back to this notion of speed and this notion of time, right? Uh, marketers have, marketers have always struggled with how do I understand how different marketing channels are performing? How do I understand, you know, the levers, right? Which lever do I, do I put more here? Do I put more less here? How do I actually understand those levers? And so that, that's called marketing mix modeling. Um, it's not new. Um, it's been around for, for quite some time. It's been a challenge for marketers to operationalize because it requires lots of data and the ability to rapidly iterate models. The difference in the game today is that today we've got AI and we've got other technologies that enable the aggregation of this data by channel to spot you know, the relationships between that channel for that segment, for that part of time, and you know, the revenue that came out of it. So it, 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 it's gonna come and marketing mix modeling today in today's technology, is going to wind up be completely redefining how marketers make the decision. And it's going to be this amazing tool that sits in a CFO's and COO, chief operating officer, and a chief revenue officer's tool belt. So there's there's a game change, which fortuitously has happened at the same time as we are going through this, this mess, you know, this, this pandemic. Um, and so the net of marketing mixed modeling is it measures the potential of all these marketing inputs and identifies what investments are most likely to produce long-term revenue. And at this, what sits underneath it is the statistical model that actually starts looking at these relationships. Where the power comes in is because our cycles, are, our business cycles now are accelerating so fast, that whatever that marketing mix model was, how much I spend on PR, how much I'm spending on maybe a billboard, how much I'm doing in direct mail, how much I'm doing in SEO, how much I'm doing all of this stuff, you know, what, what the model is today will be maybe not relevant three months from today, right? So there needs to be this ability to say, based on historical performance, based on external environmental factors, how do I now generate a number of scenarios um, and then make that decision that I'm gonna go and implement this model, right? And then I'm gonna tweak it as I go forward, a little bit less here next month, a little bit more over in direct mail, you know, a little less on webinars because we're all burnt out from webinars, maybe a little bit more in free education. So it enables this rapid pivoting and this ability to, to be flexible. Right, and we didn't have that before, but it's it's absolutely critical. Sure, let's go into this concept of marketing mix modeling a little more detail, just so the audience understands exactly what it is and what it means and how it's built. Yeah, um, well, that's a good question. Um, it can be incredibly geeky, and if you love math, then you're going to absolutely totally love this. But let me just say that there are some vendors out there that actually do this, right? So uh, let me explain it, and then I'll you know I'll. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. 
um, so, you know, marketing mixed modeling uses historical data. So, so let's first talk about, you're going to have all this historical data. It's more than likely sitting in silos. So your PR agency or your media agency is routinely, you know, collecting data on performance of, you know, pitching of articles, of topics, of speakers, whatnot. And then you're going to have your campaign data. You might have it in Marketo or Pardot or, you know, HubSpot or whatever. You're going to have your, your events data. The, the idea is let's take all of this data and let's pull it together. That has been the biggest obstacle in the past is that this is all in different formats, right? How do I get all this together? Now, um, let's now with, you know, a, a, with, um, you know, interfaces and different tools and, and being able to dump data together, you can into a lake, you can then, then look at the historical data and using regression analysis, uncover again, the contribution. And this is not, this is about attribution, but it's not about attribution. We can talk about attribution later, but it's really saying how much revenue am I actually going to get for this segment, this segment of the customer, um, you know, from this particular channel. And it's done by identifying the variations in channel spend and the, and the corresponding variations in ROI or in revenue, right? And so by using multiple regression techniques, it, you, you use it to predict the optimal mix of these variables, these models, right? And so regression is based, as we know, on a number of inputs and how these relate to the outcome. So it's about sales. Historically, you know, this was the mother of all Excel spreadsheets, right? You know, go knock yourself out or you had these like very sophisticated models and it was hugely manual because the data didn't fit together. Well, today between cloud and emerging integration technologies and being able to merge data together and AI literally, um, and I've seen this actually be done, um, someone can create, suck in all this data, you know, you do the regression analysis and actually have your baseline model in less time than someone's listening to this podcast. I mean, it, it's pretty amazing. So what does that do? So this is where, this is where it becomes this, this tool belt, uh, this strategic tool is that you now can start to experiment. Well, if I spend less, right? And we, we're in the middle of this. If I spend less on physical events and I spend more on webinars, right? Then what happens? What comes out of that in terms of the impact on potential revenue? And from that, you can start adjusting your investment and you can start adjusting really what you think your benchmarks are and all your targets are for revenue by channel and, and overall. So the key is if I'm going to wrap myself around the customer and I am going to enable my customer and I'm going to build a personal relationship, you know, and I'm going to do this fast, I need that mechanism that can take in um, historical performance along with current environmental data right? Like nobody's getting doing physical events. So, mm. um, and then how do I actually see that change? How do I make that decision? And how do I make that, you know, look at a number of scenarios? So I know that sounds terribly geeky, but it really, really is powerful. And if, com if companies haven't done it, or the marketing teams haven't done it, you don't need to have perfect data, start small, start, you know, with macro level data, and then mm -hmm. play with it. But there's, there's two vendors that I want to call out here. One, because how they've approached it is pretty amazing. The first one is cognitive ROI, cognitive as in how we think ROI, right? They are actually out of India, an amazing tool. I mean, literally in five minutes, I've seen them create models and see and create scenarios. The other oh, cool. one, right. 
yeah, it's totally amazingly cool. And is, is, Tableau, is Tableau a little bit different than that? Tableau is a little bit different um, okay. in that what it does, Tableau doesn't have is, is this ability to, on the back end engine, bring in all of this data and the external factors. So it's not structured for that, right? So it's sort of like re retrofitting. Retrofitting, as we know, doesn't always work. You know, built from the bottom up does work. So cognitive was cognitive ROI was built from the bottom up. Proof analytics is another one. Um, again, they're they're diff they're slightly different, uh, but they do the same thing. Proof analytics did an acquisition recently of an AI vendor, and they faked it into it um, in, into theirs. And so they enabled that modeling. They do it a little, again different than cognitive ROI, but it's pretty cool when you you need to go look at because it it's just like ah, mm -hmm. totally a game changer, total game changer. Yeah, it is. You know, let me talk about attribution for a minute, just from my perspective. It can be pretty complicated and misunderstood in general anyway, because it's, it's marketing 101 when you have so many different touch points. You know, marketers like us, whether you have marketing automation and Salesforce and all these different tools in Google Analytics, you know, you figure the ad platforms use, just for sake of conversation here, view through conversions, which means your ad was seen and they converted sometime in the future. Okay, so there's value there because how else are you going to measure display advertising? It's typically for branding, right? You know, we have, if you click and you buy later on or you become a lead, that's what Google calls it, assisted conversion. The problem with all this is like with all the different modeling is, and I know this and so do you, is a lot of times the marketing automation and the CRMs will track like the first touch of a lead where with analytics, it's the last touch, right? So those numbers don't match all the time. So you really have to almost like, even I for clients, you know, we talk about even with Facebook is, you know, why you put those pixels on your site so they can prove performance, right? Because, oh, I see you in my newsfeed and I bought later on, right? So there's value there, but that's kind of what it is, right? Is determining, you know, the contribution of a strategy to the end result the right way. Makes sense. <laughs> oh, totally. And you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, attribution was a stepping stone to actually getting people to more, uh, and it's a part of marketing mixed modeling, but it was a stepping stone. And, and, and I think the challenge with attribution is, is, is that we, we, it still winds up being predominantly manual or using some sort of BI or visualization or aggregation tool in order to get the big picture. But when you, once you get the big picture, you can't, you know, you can't then go in and say, well, what happens if I spend more on Facebook and, and spend less, you know, in Google words, right? So, and then it got perverted, right? It got, got perverted in this whole catch up over marketing justifying itself by saying, well, I'm going to claim out of that sale that was, you know, $200,000, you know, we contributed, you know, we, you know, $60,000 or $100,000 to that sale. And I can prove it. I mean, it, that's a rat hole conversation that is absolutely destructive within organizations. Um, so, so now we've gone from this ability to do attribution to now we're going to that next level to the ability to now say, okay, I need to do experimentation and I need to be able to measure it literally overnight or, you know, within short time span and then continually rebalancing my, where I'm spending my dollars based upon, you know, what actually happens. And I think it's a great gluing mechanism for sales and marketing to work as a team 
and he gets us out of that, well, that $60,000 credit is mine, and, you know, because you didn't do this, and da-da-da-da-da. So it's changing the conversation to focus on spotting changes in the market and changes in how buying teams behave, and then modeling on how to actually capitalize upon, upon that and get in front of these, these changes versus being reactive. You know, so many brands are reactive now, um, and we, we can't afford that. We, we can't afford that when the market is moving that quickly. Mm-hmm. Our market is using MMM today and uh, how can they leverage it better? You know, that's uh, we could unpack that into a really long conversation. Um, I think uh, where there are sophisticated folks that are doing marketing modeling, um, they typically are uh, very, very large organizations, but it's starting to come down. So if you look at cognitive ROI, they're up the big guys, right? They're spending where you've got, you know, 100 million, 200 million, you know, sitting in, in, in marketing dollars, right? And a lot of it is spent on media. Um, and then you look at, you know, pivot point, pivot, I mean, proof analytics, proof analytics tends to come a little bit more down the market. Uh, I think one of the things that I, that, you know, that I, that I see from marketers being able to leverage this is one, they need to, they need to get out of the attribution mindset and they need to go back to what marketers historically were, were responsible for, which is a read the tea leaves and, and two engage in what is our strategy. You know, they're the tip of the spear of the organization and um, that, that tip has been blunted over the last, you know, 20 to 30 years. So they need to regain that by understanding it's only by building competencies and understanding how to do scenario planning and modeling and reading the tea leaves that they're going to go do this. But bottom line is, is, you know, take something like a proof analytics, right? And try it, right? It doesn't take a lot of data or cognitive ROI. Get five minutes, look at it um, and, and start to, to play with it so that it becomes your GPS for your decision-making. So you're, you're not flying blind, right? You're, you, you have an idea of what's happening. Um, and the second is engage more in rapid cycles. I've seen, um, because we've become so data-driven, right? It literally has slowed down marketing. It slowed down experimentation because data-driven became, um, you know, synonymous with, I need to prove to the nth degree that this investment is going to produce that much revenue. And it's all based on assumptions and, and stuff. Well, you know, okay, we can do marketing mixed modeling and it'll actually give you that, that answer, but it enables marketers to get back into the business of experimentation. As our cycles of change um, accelerate, you know, if we, if they're not experimenting, and I'll kind of, I'll give you an example. If they're not experimenting, they're going to fall behind, right? So let's take the example of everybody went from physical events to virtual events, right? Everybody went to webinars, right? So there's this plethora of webinars out there. So two things popped out of that. One is, you know, thing, you know new platforms that are mimicking trade shows um, in the virtual world. So run with the world is one of them, right? It's so it, it enables in a not, not perfected way, but enables you to have that networking, that connectivity that you would have in a physical event. The other are people going way outside the box saying, let's address human connectivity, right? Let's address it in the virtual world. So instead of, you know, putting everybody through yet another webinar, right? Which is death by PowerPoint. 
just invite your prospects to a cooking class and have a guest speaker, right? And companies are doing that. And it, it just mm, brings everybody yeah, to a human connection together. Um, so you have to experiment and you have to do cycles. And I think the, le- the, the third point is that campaigns, and I'm seeing this in our clients, are becoming super sophisticated as they start to move from um, just what I call big block campaigns to much more of these micro campaigns. So it's very tuned in, again, getting the, into the individual uniqueness. It's hyper segmented as to where that particular prospect is, where really are they in the journey, not at this awareness consideration, high level you know, nonsense, but really, really specific. And then you know, have tiny little campaigns that actually go at that point with a call to action and then lead them off into the next call to action in order to bring them through it. So we're gonna see campaigns get super sophisticated. The only way that's gonna work is having this modeling engine on the back end that sort of tells people where to shift. And, and you can do it at the macro level, you can drill it all the way down into your segments. This is high level stuff, but it's really relevant and important, especially when you're trying to maximize ROI. So last question really is, I'm sold. I don't know if I'm doing it right, or maybe I should just build this into my, you know, high level business strategy. So how do we get started? You know, I think the place to get started is first of all, just take a look at your data, right? It's like, um, you have to crawl and then walk and run. So first just look at your data. What have you got? You know, is it super high level? Do you have gaps in your data? Just look at your data. Um, and don't worry about the fact that the data is going to be bad because we all have bad data. Um, but start by just doing a, doing a trial, doing a test, right? And I'm not, I'm not promoting one vendor over another. I just want people to move. And I want people, my place to start is just engage a conversation and just run it in one of these models and one of these vendors and sort of see what comes out of it, right? And you're gonna get a better feel as you start to see what your capabilities are by, by making decisions on channels. You're gonna say, okay, now I need to understand where my data is gaps, where there are gaps in my data, where my data is overly corrupt. We all have dirty data. Um, and let's go focus on cleaning out that data. Let's go focusing on bringing more channel, more data in, in order to then run scenarios. And as you start running the scenarios and don't, you know, don't expect it to be miraculous, don't expect it to be perfect, but look at it with a sense of curiosity to say, wow, well, if I actually, what happened if I didn't do any email, right? What if I all went to direct mail, what would happen, right? And, and then, you, then I think the wheels will start to turn and the creativity will come back into marketing and the conversation with sales and with your CFO is going to change because the CFOs in the world and the COOs are used to these scenario plans, right? They do them all the time. Now to have marketing engage in that conversation is a game changer in terms of credibility for marketing and having a voice at the table. Now all of a sudden we're talking about the business and we're talking about trade-offs. So the place is just start, just try it. You've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Wow. It's really impressive. And so are you. So. Oh, well, thanks, this, Paul. It's mostly you. You're the one who got, brings all this out. <laughs> I know, I know. But, there, you know, we talk about 
marketing optimization and modeling and strategy and there's so much out there and even nowadays to assess it this is these are important things to think about i mean this is called business survival right mm -hmm. and pivoting and all these other things we hear about you know you can either step aside and wait and see or you can be proactive of course um, we like proactive clients but you just got to decide you know and this is an ideal way to to do it strategically yeah and it reduces the risk and i think this is what you know this is the the other thing i didn't mention is everybody's talking about pivoting right it's become the new word of the day um and and sitting underneath that pivoting is is really risk mitigation right how do i reduce the risk how do i jump start or restart or grow my grow my revenue um, but at the same time, how do I not make the, the wrong investments or the wrong decisions, right? How do I reduce risk? Um, so the other side of this is, you know, risk, you know, this risk mitigation by having more insight and more information. Um, and that's, you know, in marketing, we don't typically talk about risk, um, but it's there, right? It, it's there. And this, this is, you know, we need to talk about risk now because it is, it is a decision factor. For sure. Christine Crandall, new business strategies. She helps companies with all of these. And she, and over her career, she's averaged, I guess, 30 to 50% increases in ROI for her clients and revenue. And, um, and that's awesome. And uh, congratulations to your success. And thanks for being here today on this insightful conversation. Um, thank you, Paul, for inviting me. I, I was, I've been so looking forward to this and, you know, and you're so easy to talk to and you're, you're, you're a lot of fun to work with. So thank you. No, thanks. Well, there was a lot of build up for sure. But, um, and for those listening out there, listen to this again and again and think about it. You know where to find me, you know where to find Christine and lots of things to think about among anything out there, but it's all about what makes sense for your company as you continue to figure out the opportunities to grow now and in the future. So that's it, Marketing Optimization. I'm Paul Mosenson. Thanks for joining me, Christine. And listen next time for another insightful show on Fix the Convince. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to get more Marketing Optimization Insights. Fix the Convince.